Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Radian, and hope that all of our American listeners had a very happy and restful Thanksgiving holiday. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A short trading week on U.S. markets because of the Thanksgiving holiday as investors grapple with mixed economic news and the collapse of electronic trading funds and job cuts by leading tech firms uh, ranging from Twitter to Amazon. This as Thanksgiving air travel rebounds to its pre-pandemic level and airlines weigh increasing flights. Still, delays are becoming even more commonplace and bad weather has forced 1,000 U.S. flights to be delayed as we record this program. That said, Airbus might miss delivery targets because it can't get enough engines fast enough. But all eyes are on China, where mass protests have erupted across the country uh, in the wake of frustration with rolling COVID lockdowns, uh, the biggest at Foxconn's giant iPhone plant in Zhangzhou uh, that is home to some 200,000 workers. NATO leaders are focusing on rebuilding depleted weapons stocks, something we have long discussed on this program, as Russia's systemic attacks on Ukraine's power, water, and heating systems are taking their toll. Poland wants U.S. Patriot missile defense systems exported to Ukraine to better help defend the country's key networks that are increasingly difficult to repair. We're also going to talk about Japan's interest in joining Tempest, Saab's $700 million order from Poland for signals intelligence ships, Leonardo and Iveco partnering uh, for a reported $2 billion tank destroyer deal for Brazil and Bulgaria's interest in uh, more F-16s. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent and equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Guys, uh, happy Thanksgiving uh, to you all, even to you, uh, Sash, and thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. Yes, thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. Happy Thanksgiving and uh, great to be on again, Vargo. Uh, absolutely great having you guys on. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran and our coverage of one of the world's truly great democracy, security and civil society conferences. The Halifax International Security Forum was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. And the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, everybody, welcome uh, back again. Ron, start us off as you always uh, do. A little bit of a slow uh, week, folks coming off of a bull market little bit of confusing economic uh, news, sense that there is a recession coming or that we may actually be in a recession, but that that recession might not be that bad, um, but compounded by the collapse of electronic trading funds and, um, uh, you know, obviously some of uh, the negative news out of the leading tech firms that have a tendency of swaying markets. How did the aerospace and defense group fare in this broader environment? Yeah, and it did, did fine. Um, if you look on the week, uh, the S&P 500, um, and bear in mind, it was a short trading week, right? Uh, we, we really only had kind of like you know, two and a half days. Uh, but uh, the S&P 500 was up about a percent and a half. 
Um, and Boeing was the leader of the week up two and a half percent. Pretty much everybody else in the group was up anywhere between call it one to three percent, uh, maybe with the exception of Maxar, they took charge on a satellite uh, that they're working on. And they were down 10 percent on the week. Uh, but pretty much everybody else was, you know, you know, more or less in line with the market, maybe a smidge better uh, across both commercial aerospace and, and defense. Um, if you look at where the 10 year ended the week, uh, the 10 year has been on a little bit of a slide in November. Uh, you know, we peaked out a little over 4%, the 10 years now down around 3.7%. Um, and oil prices on the week were off um, kind of broadly across both WTI and Brent, um, called about 3%. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we ended the week. It was a bit of a just kind of a very, very quiet, low volume week. Uh in, indeed, as everybody was, uh, you know, a lot of folks took the entire week off, uh, and certainly, um, even though the markets are open on Friday, was pretty low volume, uh, pretty low volume day. Uh, Sash, uh, a lot of these trends exist in Europe also. Inflation figures, um, you know, still high, but a sense that we may be uh, tamping down a little bit worse uh, in UK than it is elsewhere. Uh, how did the group perform, and how, you know, against uh, European markets and what the major drivers were? Understanding that we're going to get into a whole bunch of defense storylines uh, in a minute in terms of a lot of new business. You know, I, I failed to mention in my introduction. Uh, anybody who's a fan of the H3, the legendary Sea King, uh, is also glad to see them uh, being put to good use, going to Ukraine, UK, uh, donating seeking uh, aircraft to Ukraine for search and rescue uh, missions, right? So we've got a lot lot to talk about. But what were some, some of the broader market drivers and how the group in Europe performed uh, against uh, wider market sentiments? Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, group in Europe actually had a, had a pretty good week last week. Um, the stocks that we cover up on an average of 4%, um, which, was, which was good. A real bifurcation between uh, civil and defense. Airbus ended the week down a percent. Uh, overall, and that brought back Safran, Rolls Royce, MTU, which were up, up a percent or so. But I mean, overall, civil stocks were up about two percent. Um, Airbus was down because there's a, um, a report um, on Reuters that they're going to um, possibly miss some deliveries for uh, 2022. You'll remember they already bought their deliveries target down from 720 aircraft to about 700. Now sounds like it's going to be less than 700 aircraft and possibly the ramp um, uh, of production rates for the A320neo family in 2023 isn't going to be quite as aggressive as uh, Airbus had wanted. And this is, you know, the old culprit. Uh, they just can't get the engines to fit on them. Um, and if you can't get the engines, you're just building gliders. The customer can't fly them away. So that pulled the civil stocks back a bit this week. The defense stocks had a really good week, um, up uh, 4.5% uh, on average, BA systems up 5, Dassault up 5. Um, star of the week actually was um, uh, Rheinmetall up 9%. Uh, I think that was very much the uh, follow-on from their capital markets day and the, the big uh, artillery ammunition uh, acquisition they announced the week before. Uh, Rheinmetall is now nearly 200 euros again, having uh, really come back to about 140 earlier on this year. So um, that's been a very, very strong performer. But you know, it also dragged up uh, Talis up 5% uh, as well. So it, it, was a, it was an active week and it ended particularly with the defence stocks very well indeed. Um, I want to uh, just ask in terms of rearmament, right? I mean, that's 
the big story. Um, we've been discussing it week after week on this program. Obviously, the transaction, uh, the uh, Rheinmetall buying the Spanish ammunition uh, firm makes a big difference. What other uh, what else are you hearing over the course of the week as now there is sort of, you know, growing uh, transatlantic uh, focus on the issue? I think the issue has always had focus, by the way, but now we're starting to see progress uh, and now we're starting to see people really step up. But then also that we're just simply not producing enough as quickly as we need to produce it early in this program. Sash, you were uh, you know, doing the raw, hard mathematics any gunner does about how much ammunition will be needed. Uh, the United States is making 15,000 rounds uh, a month. Uh, Europe is making about half that. Uh, South Koreans obviously produce a lot and people have discovered, hey, wait a minute, there's, there's a good ammunition maker out there who can scratch our itch as well. Um, whereas uh, in Ukraine, folks are talking about firing between four and 9,000 rounds a day, um, right? What's the focus that you're hearing from European leaders uh, on uh, getting a better handle on this situation beyond what we heard at, at Rheinmetall's Capital Markets Day? European leaders, I don't think, um, can get their heads around the fact that their stocks are incredibly low, that industrial capacity is very weak because it's been hollowed out over a quarter of a century. You know, the peace dividend has been incredibly damaging to Western Europe overall. And the idea that uh, Europe might actually have to start adding to capacity again, uh, and capacity is expensive, takes a long time to come through. Um, treasuries hate adding to capacity because they see it as being a, um, you know, a long-term commitment that they would rather avoid. Um, so, you know, political leaders, they hate these ideas. It's it's and it's also very very uncomfortable and difficult stuff. Um, there is a better understanding, or at least an understanding, among militaries. But even militaries, you know, if you are a starred uh, ranking general of some sort, you want to buy, you know, big shiny equipment. The idea that you're going to have to divert some of the, the money that you would have wanted to spend on combat aircraft or ships or armored vehicles or whatever to buy dumb or you know what's referred to as dumb ammunition um that's not what you joined for in general um because you, you know you get more kudos from for buying combat aircraft it, it's very it's very sad but it's this is how these systems work but it's it's being forced on people and i think you're absolutely right ammunition usage rates uh early into um early in the year what we were looking at was usage rates of uh, uh, portable missiles, javelins, stingers, anti-armor weapons, end laws, and the usage rates there were off the, off the scale. Now it's 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 artillery ammunition, and um, we're you know we're certainly seeing a focus on missile stocks now and a focus on missile production. So Saab is starting to increase production rates for its end law missiles and indeed Carl Gustav's. Uh, we've seen um, funding for the. Uh, Lockheed Martin guided MLRS round for HIMARS and the older MLRS systems. So that's starting to ramp up. Artillery is next, in our view. Uh, heavy artillery is next. Um, and as that starts to ramp up, we're going to discover the very uncomfortable thing that with the exception of Korea, you know, there's really only three big producers of artillery in the world. General Dynamics, ATK, um, and you know, increasingly Rheinmetall with, with XPAL. Every other European nation that has artillery, and there aren't very many, you know, are producing 10,000, uh, probably not seen 10,000, it's 10,000 a year, perhaps 20, 30,000 a year for, uh, for somewhere like uh, France or the UK, but very small quantities. And uh, the, the ramp will take time because the 
long pole in the tent here is going to be supplies of forgings for the uh, shells and forgings typically, I mean, you know, this comes back to you know, the aerospace thing we can talk about. Forgings take, you know, six, nine, 12 months to come through the system um, and uh, propellants, nitroglycerin, just isn't enough bit in the world. Uh, it's uh, utterly fascinating that some of the same uh, constraints you would have seen in World War One uh, are the same uh, constraints that you see uh, today. I, I would like to point out that at the Halifax Forum, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before, uh, Admiral Rob uh, Bauer, uh, who was the chairman of NATO's uh, military committee, a Dutch admiral, uh, was talking about the importance of getting the political will together in order to be able to replenish depleted uh, stocks that he pointed out, right? We weren't starting from full stocks as it were, we were starting from half stocks. And one of the things you picked up from political leaders, uh, especially uh, former uh, political uh, defense leaders was, look, oftentimes when we have to make up defense shortfalls, uh, we didn't want to derail uh, capital programs like combat aircraft or uh, ship programs or vehicle programs that would incur uh, a bigger financial penalty. We shortcut ammunition. Uh, and trim down the number of missiles we would buy in replenishment because we thought we could take greater risk there than we could uh, with derailing uh, high-end uh, uh, weapons programs. So I thought it was kind of an interesting that almost everybody on, everywhere on the planet, this tendency, with the possible exception perhaps of South Korea, uh, was, was this sort of tendency uh, to do that. Uh, Richard, I want to go uh, to can, you. Can I, can I just add one, 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 one last thing for... Uh, for, for listeners, your your analogy with the First World War is absolutely bang on. The British Army had a catastrophic shell crisis in 1915 because the industrial capacity had gone to waste in the in the 15 20 years um, during and after the, uh, the the Boer War. Um, the big difference for artillery shells now is that they're no longer cast but they're forged. It means the shells are immeasurably more effective. Um, right. The, a, a forged shell, I had it referred to me uh, by a U.S. artilleryman. He said it's a communist round. Everybody gets a little bit, which is just enough. Um, uh, whereas casting, cast shells are incredibly inefficient. But here's the problem. Forgings take longer to do. And so we've got ourselves into this position where we have exquisite rounds with long lead times. Uh, and, and indeed, although I have to say that for each of the bullets the Ukrainians are firing, the Excalibur rounds or, or GMLRS are put to far greater value than a whole bunch of uh, unguided rounds. But then again, the Russians really uh, don't, ca don't care either way how much damage uh, they do. Uh, uh, Richard, you've been very patient, but very quickly uh, to bring Ron into this. From a supply standpoint, what kind of motion are you seeing, right? Because ultimately... It's the awarding of contracts that move a needle when it comes to production of any of this sophisticated stuff. Um, the U.S. executives have said we're reluctant to invest money to start ramping up production unless we have firm uh, awards uh, or firm interest on the part of the customer. What, are, what have companies been saying as this story plays out increasingly in the headlines? What are you picking up from U.S. industry and, and uh, the Pentagon and elsewhere about their appetite for uh, replenishing weapon stocks and doing it more quickly. Yeah, there's definitely an appetite to do it. And we're seeing in some cases uh, orders coming in and other cases not yet. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's the, the ball is rolling um, and it just takes time to kind of get the flywheel going. Um, but uh, for sure, uh, in some cases, we've definitely seen, um, like, you know, the case of the MLRS uh, that, uh, with Lockheed that uh, Sash mentioned. Um, but we've it's 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 broader than that. 
Um, and what the companies have said, you know, they've they've had conversations where there's, you know, interest in bumping up rates of X, Y, or Z to a certain level. And when can they get that done? And when can it all start happening? And pretty much all the companies have said, you know, this is really kind of a 2023 story where you start to see all the stuff really roll through. But, um, you know, it's, it's real. It's happening. Um, it's probably not happening as quick as anybody had hoped. Like, I don't know, it's kind of how everything goes, um, but it's definitely happening. Uh, I, I think uh, I think the key is showing uh, Putin. He thinks that he can outlast us and we'll lose interest and move on to another thing. And he can freeze Ukraine as long as we can show him that that's not the case. And we can actually generate production. Really, as sanctions start to bite, it's really interesting how the storyline was there's no impact on Russia whatsoever. And now all of a sudden the oh, my God, you know, there is an impact. And even Putin is worried uh, indeed about uh, the economic impact of uh, what were unprecedented sanctions, which suggests to me we should figure out ways to actually tighten them on them uh, to, to, to act as a little more strangulation in this case would be beneficial. Uh, Richard, you've been very patient, uh, and I want to get to the commercial uh, aircraft portion of this conversation, uh, but uh, just give you a chance to talk about the weapons uh, stuff before we move on. Yeah, you know, obviously a complete agreement with uh, Sash and Ron. The one interesting aspect I'd add is that there's an historic precedent for this kind of uh, strategic surprise. 1973, the Yom Kippur War, um, when Israel found itself in exactly the situation and the U.S. had to deplete a lot of its stockpiles, shipping stuff via air to Israel to just keep firing. And that was only, of course, a you know, three-week, one-month conf conflict. Um, this is nothing we haven't experienced before. What's different here is that we're effectively, as somebody once put it, using a couple percent of the U.S. defense budget and a couple percent of other NATO country defense budgets to bleed a key strategic adversary dry. So <laughs> I'm, in other words, there are worse problems to have. It's tragic, it's horrible, but all of this is for a good cause. Watching this terrible war machine basically grind to a halt. And yes, we'll learn as we did in 73 about the importance of stockpiling and the importance of bandwidth and defense industry, but it's all for you know a purpose. Um, but I should also point out at that point, right, we we still had um, a war production capability uh, from the Vietnam War, uh, right, uh, that was uh, still, I think, in that period as we were starting True. to rebalance uh, to the Soviet Union, we still had a lot more production capacity uh, than we have now and a lot more surge capacity. And again, our whole just-in-time mindset was something that was not prevalent back then. Uh, and, and that we're coming to grips with and indeed paying a price for uh, today. Uh, commercial aircraft, air travel. My man, Richard, you've been tracking this. Uh, does the rhetoric we heard from chief executives, right? I mean, you can turn on a TV without hearing uh, uh, airline CEOs talk about how, uh, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word, we're in the money. Um, you know, what, what, what were you picking up in terms of what these travel trends look like? Uh, because flights have been full, but flights were full in part because, you know, the companies have been a little bit, they're, they're erring toward filling more planes rather than having more flights on. So talk about the dynamics of this um, and what this means for longer haul business travel, uh, ultimately, which is uh, one of the, the, the key drivers. And it's not abundantly clear that, you know, there's some signs that that's warming up, but not entirely. Where, where, where are you at the end of this Thanksgiving holiday? Delays and everything else accounted for. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of interesting. Uh, this Thanksgiving holiday, by most data that we've gotten in so far, is almost 100% of 2019s. Uh, so it's, it's more than just talk. 
Uh, and not only that, uh, good people at Airlines for America remind us that uh, actually staffing levels are a bit higher than they were in 2019 at this time, too. So in other words, the airlines are putting their money where their mouth is, ramping up in capacity, feeling pretty good about the future. Pricing is really good, too. Um, you know, has it kept pace with inflation? Well, it's obviously they're not making buckets of cash. But on the other hand, it's it's they're not buying their way into a recovery, which has certainly been, you know, a feature of the landscape in previous commercial era recoveries. Uh, the big question still remains if there is a recession. Um, and I think the, the latest uh, I'll ask Ron to, of course, correct me on this. But I think the latest purchasing managers index is like 45 percent of people expect a recession or 45 percent of economists expect a recession. Um, and that's a very high number, um, and it could easily happen. Obviously, do we outperform that? In other words, does the strength of the travel recovery just uh, power through whatever kind of recession we've got? I think there are good reasons for optimism. You know, I mean, depending upon the severity, depending upon the duration of the recession, right now uh, the airlines feel pretty good, and like I said, they're they're staffing up. Uh, international heading back, you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously Asia and obviously North American Asia and Europe to Asia. That's, that's, that's the, the, the laggard here, uh, centered around China. That's a whole nother topic, but in terms of other international traffic, we're, we're right on course. So, you know, it looks pretty good for a recovery sometime later next year. Um, in terms of 2019 international traffic numbers, excluding Asia. Uh, let's uh, go around the horn uh, on that. Uh, Ron and Sash, what's your guys' sort of prognosis on long-haul uh, travel? And I do want to get to the issue of China, um, right? Authoritarian regimes tend to be going fine until they're not. Uh, and then they sort of hop the rails. And it looks like we are hopping rails. Uh, it's not just the Foxconn plant, uh, but there are um, actually protests all around the country. Uh, and increasing frustration with the fact that a lot of people did not sign up to be in an increasingly Maoist uh, China after having uh, tasted freedom uh, and at least a degree of freedom and a, a degree of expression and a degree of middle-class normalcy uh, and, and now not seeing that. But, but real quick, um, Ron and, and Sash, your guys' sense on um, what the air travel forecast looks like. And if you guys want to open up the discussion on China and what that means, and how potentially problematic that is, right? I mean, a weaker China does get somewhat more dangerous because the leadership may want to do something externally, uh, which is always a, always a concern. Um, and they tend to crack down and the cracking down then make, but can succeed as well, right? I mean, you kill enough people, <laughs> um, ultimately you might, you might succeed as, as has been the Iranian case. Anyway, walk us through these themes. And if you guys want to ramp into the China discussion, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'll start maybe on the Thanksgiving travel. I mean, Thanksgiving travel was uh, was good, uh, I mean, clearly. Uh, but I guess the real question is, you know, what happens as we go into next year? The big variable on, you know, kind of getting back to the pre-COVID levels of travel at this point is really China, right? I mean, sort of the rest of the world was working its way there. Uh, some places are already there. But if you see sort of the, the weakness in international travel, it's all Asia-Pacific. You know, North Atlantic's been fine, and even other parts of Asia have been okay, but um, the China piece is what's missing. So more uncertainty around what's happening in China is just, you know, kind of more uncertainty about ultimately when um, global air traffic gets back to, um, you know, pre, pre-pandemic levels, and that's ultimately probably more volatility for demand on wide bodies, 
you look at the narrow body market, it's been strong. It's super strong right now. And, you know, Bass, you, we just learned Airbus might not be able to deliver all the airplanes they want this year because they can't get engines. But there's clearly more demand for airplanes than, than anybody can make right now and across pretty much every market, you know, including business aviation. Um, so the China thing's important, but I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to look into a crystal ball and say what's going to happen. Like, who knows? Right. I mean, that's just, there's, it's so nonlinear, you know, anybody can take a guess. Um, and then the, the, the thing as we go into 2023, that does concern me is the consumer. Um, so, you know, one of the things I like to look at is Walmart and, uh, you know, Walmart, when they reported they're taking a more cash, more cautious stance into 2023 mm -hmm. uh, in that they think, you know, the recovery could could take longer, that inflation might be around for longer than people think. You know, they're in their own numbers and what they're seeing. I mean, they've cut back on their ordering with their suppliers because they're seeing, you know, folks being more price sensitive and so on and so forth. And that ultimately could flow through to the consumer. Um, it's it's unclear to me right now when when do we ultimately lap sort of the the revenge travel the catch up travel that was happening because people couldn't travel for two years when do we get back to sort of a more normal travel dynamic um, and my my gut sense is it's probably the end of this year as we roll into 2023 we're going to see less of that kind of catch up travel and we'll be back to sort of a more travel you know more normal travel dynamic so so we'll see I mean there's positives there's negatives. Um, but that's kind of where I fall out on it. Sash? I, I, I've got very little to add to, uh, to, to what Ron just said. I mean, just uh, to focus a little bit more on, on China, um, Chinese contagion in long-haul travel, particularly in Asia-Pacific, is, is uh, you know, it, it just dominates that. So China has a bad month. The whole of the Asia-Pacific long-haul market has a bad month, um, where, you know, almost whether they like it or not. Um, and I think the fact that there are, you know, there's starting to be really significant civil unrest in China. Um, what should we expect? First of all, it's going to mean that domestic travel in China is probably going to have a bad month, uh, end of November and going into uh, December as well, um, because uh, there are COVID lockdowns which are being reimposed uh, anyway. And you know, the Chinese authorities are unlikely to want more people to be flying around when the internal political situation uh, is bad, and that will then have another effect. You know, they may well put on even bigger clampdowns on international travel as well. So I think the you know the effect of these um, uh, you know riots and and protests and so forth, uh, yeah, it's possible that it will all be over by the end of end of next week. Um, although I suspect we won't like how how that ends. But it, this does worry me because I think you know this drags a lot of other Europe. Oh, sorry, a lot of other Asian markets uh, and a, a lot of long haul travel down with it. Richard, yeah, I mean, I, I think the it, exactly. You know, basically, there's so much uncertainty introduced as as a result of what we're seeing in China over the past uh, 36 hours. You know, the way these things have worked in the past is that you know if they don't lock down very quickly crack down and unfortunately in a brutal way they're running the risk of you know serious issues that well this this is the sort of thing that resulted in 1978 uh, Iran for example and um, obviously the effect of something really tumultuous like something Tiananmen only worse and and more you know wide sweeping uh, that would have a huge impact on on global air travel and of course on humanity in general 
Um, you know, the one thing that really hits you is just how desperately incompetent it is, because through all of this, there's no discussion of the idea of, say, simply lifting barriers to vaccines coming right. across borders. <laughs> That's all you have to do. So eventually, there are enough educated, smart, worldly people in China who are going to say, what the hell is wrong with you clowns? And things go very bad from there. Um, yes, but one of the things that she has done is, right, he's surrounded by uh, yes people. Um, he's uh, surrounded by hardliners, and he doesn't have a lot of people around him, at least as far as we can tell, uh, that can put their arm around them and be like, she, you're really fouling this up, dude. Um, just open up and grab foreign vaccines. They've built narratives from which they cannot escape, whether it's on Taiwan or whether it's on anything else. And so authoritarians have a tendency of being unable to back off. Why is Putin sticking with this? Because it's a special military operation and he's quadrupled down on it. So it's basically like, you know, and he's counting on, I can outlast all of you, just like she might be able to say, hey, look, there are enough Chinese who feel like the economic boat is floating. I guess guess the broader question would, would be, at a time when we're already decoupling, don't riots and protests like this propel the remaining people to seriously consider whether they want to be in the country, thereby actually compounding the problems for Xi uh, ultimately, right? I mean, doesn't this end up actually becoming worse? Sash, uh, you're one of the histories of authoritarian (laughs) regimes sort of ending badly. Richard, uh, you too, you know, sort of get your guys sense on what the mass economic impact of this could be and whether or not it actually contribute, whether it's actually exponentially worse for China, but also really bad for the rest of the world, given that China's critical to global trade. You know, if you don't mind me starting, Sash, I'll just quickly, you know, make the point that, yes, you're exactly right. Systems like these are incredibly brittle. And you look back at the history of these sorts of things, they tend to begin with something relatively innocuous. And this includes 1789 France. It, It wasn't all that big a deal at first, <laughs> or, you know, 1978 Iran or, or many others, heck, even the end of the Batista dictatorship in, 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 in Cuba and whatever else, when brittle authoritarian systems collapse, it tends to start with something relatively minor that uh, results in a bunch of people seeing the contradictions in the system and how things aren't going in the right direction. And most importantly, when they see other people um, starting to riot, whatever else, and they're not being shot, <laughs> they're emboldened. And there's this enormous reserve of simmering rage that comes to the surface. The consequences of something like this happening, I mean, if it's just Tiananmen, which was a tragedy that resulted in several thousand deaths, I believe, and and you could, there wasn't enough of a Chinese air travel system back then to really show up in the numbers. It, it was never this, you know, it was never what it is now, but you could easily see if that happened again or something far more consequential like regime change, you know, you'd be talking about removing a double digit chunk of the air transport system from the worldwide industry. Sash? No, I, uh, actually nothing to add to that, but um, all, all I will um, say is that, you know, Boeing said at the, um, uh, at their capital, you know, their capital markets day, we've de-risked China. Um, we'll see. I don't think any uh, civil aerospace company has has, has de-risked 
China from their uh, from their exposure, either in terms of you know orders, deliveries, spares, whatever. By the way, uh, speaking of, uh, of of Boeing, really uh, quick, uh, Ron. Um, so Embraer, talk to us a little bit about the lawsuit that's happening, right? Because Embraer and Boeing were supposed to unite their uh, aircraft uh, operations. That obviously and very prominently did not happen in the wake of the whole. United States sanctioning Bombardier, driving it uh, at Boeing's request, driving it into the arms of Airbus. Uh, so not only is Airbus stronger, but Boeing actually did not end up stronger as a consequence of its uh, walking away from uh, uh, Embraer, uh, making matters worse. L3 Harris uh, is the one now who's partnered with Embraer on the KC-390, an airplane that actually might have more legs uh, ultimately than, than, than folks may have thought. Walk, walk us through what this suit potentially means or doesn't mean uh, ultimately for Boeing? Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately it came from, there was a, a fair amount of um, maybe consternation around Boeing um, recruiting engineers in Brazil. They set up a engineering center in Sao Jose dos Campos, uh, which is uh, you know, the, the headquarters of, of Embraer. Uh, but uh, this, this news came out, I guess, late last week that uh, the Brazilian Association of Defense and Security Material Industries and the Association of Aerospace Industries of Brazil uh, are both suing Brazil for talent poaching. And I think the argument goes something around, this is you know, key skills that are required for you know, the, the countries and in, in industrial base, the defense industrial base. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll see ultimately where it goes. Um, I mean, just you know, candidly, I don't, I don't have a good sense on you know, which way this thing will go, but um, it kind of gets at the heart of um, a, a couple matters, right? I mean, you know, you, you, aerospace defense industries are, are industries, as you as we all know, that have um, required highly skilled labor and are valued by countries. So I would imagine, right? I mean, there is some sensitivity of the Brazilian government around this. That's that's one, and then two, um, all all of this could have not happened if um, ultimately the the Boeing Embraer deal closed, which the current Boeing management team decided not to do. So I don't know. I mean, it's just yet another complicated thing that's kind of fall out from you know, some decisions that were made uh, with regard to uh, Boeing in, in Brazil. Uh, alas, um, we uh, do not have a lot of time and we have a lot to discuss. I'm going to go over to you, uh, Sash, because there's been a wave uh, of uh, defense uh, orders uh, and activity in Europe. Uh, we have uh, that will involve Europe. We have uh, Japanese uh, news stories suggest that uh, Japan is is formally going to join uh, Tempest, uh, that now includes uh, the UK, Sweden, uh, and Italy. Uh, and until very recently, sounded like Germany might join it as well, but that looks like that's uh, not the case. Saab landing a three hundred million dollar order for signals intelligence ships from Poland, uh, and then the Leonardo Iveco deal. Um, uh, for a $2 billion deal uh, for uh, to Brazil uh, for tank destroyers, uh, which is uh, really uh, pretty pretty amazing and uh, a, a real vote of confidence in the Chentaro vehicle as well, which is one of the world's finest combat vehicles. Walk us through what all these the storylines and themes uh, mean. And if you want to touch on, uh, and, and then I have a war specific question as well, which I'll follow up on. And we can talk about the Sea King deal and the Patriot deal as well. Go ahead. Okay, so um, uh, first of all, just the um, uh, there's a very very well sourced you know long form read in the London Financial Times uh, about the Tempest program and about relations between the UK and Japan 
and how the Japanese involvement in Tempest, which was um, announced as being, you know, that, that they were exploring coming in and some sort of merging of the FX pro uh, program for a Japanese fighter with Tempest, that was all announced back in the uh, the summer at uh, um, Rian Farnborough. And uh, there's now, uh, they're now getting to the stage of actually signing the political agreement and committing the, uh, the funds for that. Um, clearly, this is happening at the same time as the Franco-German SCAF program is, uh, they are trying to get uh, over the wire in terms of um, the, the equivalent phase 1B funding. Um, there's some disagreement as to whether the industrial uh, representatives, Dassault and Airbus, have actually got to the same level of agreement as the political uh, sides have, but whatever. I think the interesting thing about uh, Tempest and the Japanese is that uh, the Japanese are becoming more and more committed to this program because they see this as being a way that they can get the industrial um, uh, the industrial knowledge, the industrial scale and work share that they haven't been able to get, for example, by license building the uh, the F-16 and creating the F-2 program uh, in Japan, or indeed license assembling uh, F F-35s from, from Lockheed Martin either. Uh, Tempest, they would be coming in absolutely at the uh, at the ground floor. And I think it, you know, the fact that despite a lot of political problems uh, associated with getting the UK, uh, uh, Italy and Japan to actually uh, agree on stuff and to sign it in the, in, the, in the last three, six months or so, it sounds like, you know, the political will is there to get this signed up and hence, you know, really to um, uh, enter 2023 with quite a degree of momentum. So that, that's very, that's a very interesting story. Orders. Uh, Saab, um, or oh, Sweden, but Saab has got uh, an order to build two signal intelligence ships for Poland. Um, I think the Baltic is going to get a pretty crowded place. There's going to be a lot of uh, old warships around. But this just highlights how, as well as having, you know, the front end equipment, the ability to uh, hoover up the electronics, in, uh, the electronic signals, the, you know, the noise that is coming out, particularly from Russia, because that's who this is aimed at, uh, up in the north end of the Baltic is something that Poland sees as a priority. So, uh, Sweden saw as a priority. They ordered a similar ship from Saab uh, from memory about two years ago. And there, the hull was produced in Poland. All of the, the clever stuff was being uh, installed in, in Sweden. This looks like it's a, almost a mirror image of that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it's actually nearly 700 million euros. That's a very, very serious order for, for Saab's warship business, Cockham's. And, uh, you know, I think that'll be a, a nice way for, for Cockham's to end Q4. Finally, Chintaro. Chintaro is a big 8x8 uh, wheeled armoured vehicle, significantly bigger than um, uh, a striker. And when you look at the turret that uh, Leonardo and Iveco put on that thing, it's nearly a Leopard 2 turret. It's a huge thing. So this is not the armoured gun system, which was a, uh, a bit of a makeshift 105mm um, gun that was put on the, uh, some of the US Army strikers. This is a very serious uh, um you know, tank killer, uh, and uh, selling about 200, possibly 220 of these vehicles to Brazil, uh, worth nearly 2 billion. That's an enormous pro, uh, order for Italian industry. And you know, as you say, hi highlights just how good Centauro is. And let me ask you one uh, last question, because I know you've got to go uh, in just uh, two minutes or uh, so. Talk to us about the H3 deal. Anybody who loves uh, the helicopter uh, would love to see it uh, in service, doing some good for somebody uh, who could benefit from it. 
but also a little bit about the Patriot deal, because the Poles are asking for capability that they want forward deployed by NATO into Ukraine to bolster Ukraine's air defense capabilities uh, against the Russians that are almost systemically right. I mean, and anybody who knows about complex, uh, large scale power plant equipment knows that is not easy stuff to replace, uh, especially if badly damaged, which is the reason why the Russians are so systemically targeting them. Eventually, you know, I was at the Halifax Forum uh, and Ukrainian leaders pointed out, like, we have an X amount of equipment available to rebuild these power plants that are being damaged uh, and and destroyed. Um, You know, sort of walk us through what these two storylines mean, uh, because as far as I'm concerned, sending patriots to Ukraine should be a no-brainer. Okay. Um, Seeking, first of all, it's only six Seekings, but the UK has got probably two or three times that many in store. We retired them all a couple of years ago. Um, And heaven knows, you know, Ukraine needs uh, medevac capabilities, which seems to be what they're going to be used for initially. Although, frankly, given what they can do with other aircraft that they've had and other missiles, you know, if these things ended up flying with anti-ship missiles, I wouldn't bat an eyelid. Um, but the reason why this is significant is that the West has been very reluctant to deliver aircraft, rotary or fixed wing of any sort to Ukraine. Um, you know, the Ukrainians have been asking for F-16s or even, you know, better than that for, uh, for the last nine months. And they haven't got anywhere with those. Um, I think the fact that somebody has sort of broken the taboo of delivering any sort of uh, aircraft to Ukraine is significant, and we'll you know we'll see we'll see how it goes from there. But so, so you, you know, think we, this could be this could be just as the UK did shipping MLRS over is the one that opened the door for other people to say, okay, right, we'll we'll do the same thing with rocket artillery. This could open the door for military aircraft shipments to Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, may only open it a little bit, but you've got to start somewhere. So that's significant. Secondly, um, Poland is uh, requesting that uh, there should be a Patriot deployment uh, into Poland, well, uh, through Poland into Ukraine. Ostensibly, this is because uh, there was the very unfortunate incident a couple of weeks ago where uh, a Ukrainian um, air defense missile landed in Poland and killed some people. Um, what the issue uh, in the first instance is that far too many um, Ukrainian air defense engagements are happening very, very close to the Polish and other NATO countries' borders because um, that's where the Russians are targeting. So, you know, we're starting to see the border being um, uh, extremely uh, porous and the, uh, the Poles and the Ukrainians want to advance NATO air defenses through Poland into Ukraine. Um, Patriot is a very escalatory missile because it's an incredibly capable missile. Um, but you know, as you rightly pointed out, once we we as the West have gone down the HIMARS route, and HIMARS has a very very um, you know important capability, and once the Ukrainians have shown that they can be given HIMARS, they can use them really well, and they won't certainly immediately strike into Russia. I.e., these are a defensive capability then the argument for not supplying Patriot uh, to Ukraine pretty much vanishes. You supply uh, Patriot to Ukraine, it's totally defensive, and it will protect the power plants that are going to keep people warm and with electricity during the winter. Um, It's hard to see what's not to like, but uh, there is a huge amount of sensitivity in NATO, and sadly and predictably, particularly in Germany, about this level of escalation. So we'll see how these discussions go on this week.
Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, I know you've got to go. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Pleasure as always, Adam. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, Richard, uh, just to wrap uh, the show up, and Ron, going to give you a moment as well. Talk to us a little bit about Bulgarian F-16s and the Greenville uh, production line. Um, obviously, would be very important as that, uh, right? I mean, the line has moved from Fort Worth, uh, where it's been for more than four decades, uh, to South Carolina. Walk us through the Bulgarian order uh, and what it means for Greenville. Yeah, I think it somewhat de-risks the um, return to production of the F-16, the re-emergence of an actual F-16 in Greenville. You know, this is sort of a neglected part of the aircraft market uh, and neglected, I think, I think in part by Lockheed Martin that had been focused understandably on the F-35. And the F-35 is uh, perfect for some customers, but not all of them. And obviously, Bulgaria is a classic example, but the order book for the F-16 is above 150 and going to grow way past 200. I'd be very surprised if the new line didn't build another six or 700 fighters. Uh, and not only do they order more uh, for Bulgaria, but there's even talk of an interim fighter lease or purchase, maybe from, maybe from Saab, maybe from Dassault, just because of that pressing need for a capable frontline uh, air vehicle in the in the short term, and it's going to be a while before, just like with the F thirty five, the F sixteen can actually satisfy demand. So it's a welcome development for a, a relatively neglected part of the air combat market. You know, we're looking at numbers for the entire combat aircraft uh, industry. A few years ago, it was sort of stuck at twenty billion a year in new deliveries. Uh, it's had fast headed to forty to forty five by well, so, sometime by the time they finally get the F-35 up to its uh, its volume of 156, and then probably beyond that to 50 billion a year. So it's one of the, believe it or not, this somewhat old-fashioned jet combat aircraft market is one of the fastest growth markets uh, in aerospace. Uh, well, if you look at it, right, I mean, with a lot of uh, more advanced weaponry you're putting on it, it's, it's basically the payload and the base capability of the airplane, and it's an exceptionally capable airplane, and not everybody feels they need kick down the door first generation, you know, stealth you know frontline stealth capability so if you need That's a combat right. aircraft to defend yourself a rafale or an f-16 or an f-18 will make a great combination yeah that's right and uh, you know as ash was discussing the whole possible f3 japan tempest uk uh, alliance merger or whatever you want to call it that's another fascinating development uh it's really hit you over the years maybe that japan was forced into it maybe they had no choice uh, but Maybe they just made the wrong call, but they were always closely aligned in co-development projects with U.S. industry, which meant they were completely dwarfed and they were never treated as equals. Technology development never happened uh, to the extent that they had expected. The F-2 is the perfect example of that. But then you look at the possible harmonizing of resources and requirements with the UK. And that's a potential game changer in the market. It's not going to challenge the US for supremacy, but as being the second most important producer of combat aircraft, yeah, you could easily see that happening. So I think it's a fascinating development. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we've said on this program before, when folks were talking about uh, Dassault Airbus uh, on the SCAF program, the United States calls the shots on F-35 because we're buying 2,000 of them uh, or more of the total buy. Everybody knows we're the guy driving it. But if you were 150, 150 jets, you know, you're, you're Germany buying 150, you're France buying 150. 
it's reasonable for Germany to go, hang on a second, why are you totally in charge of this program? And I'm buying half of the airplanes. Whereas uh, from a Japan, England, um, uh, Sweden, Italy perspective, there's work to go around. Uh, and, and it's going to be interesting because the Japanese will likely buy more of those jets than anybody else. So that's going to add another sort of interesting dynamic uh, to that. I mean, I think people have a tendency of forgetting exactly how big Japan's defense budget is, even at 1% of GDP, when it's the third largest <laughs> economy on the planet. Yeah, that's right. And effectively, the market there for combat aircraft in total is about 400. Obviously, 150 or so are going to be F-35s. But, you know, you could not rule out the idea of them buying 250 fighters over the next couple decades. Um, and that's, that's, yes, as you say, that's bigger than the UK. The other thing that really hits you is that their requirements are a lot closer to the UK's in terms of speed, time to climb, everything like that. Whereas the US right now, prioritization is something, well, right now F-35, of course, a strike fighter built for the post-Cold War world, and NGAD, which of course is uh, probably a lot more plain than the UK or Japan uh, need or can afford. Well, I, and I think the Japanese were very burned. They wanted the F-22 very badly. It had no uh, anti-tamper uh, on it. The United States was adamant about not selling it. Uh, there was legislation, in fact, that prohibited uh, that uh, and if you're Japanese, you don't want to go down that road uh, again, right? And and they were very interested in Eurofighter for the reasons it, that it's an exceptionally good interceptor and uh, along the lines of what they uh, wanted. And, and so that's why everybody was fascinated uh, and some stunned uh, that they went with the F-35 instead when their requirement was for uh, a high altitude, uh, very capable interceptor. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving again to uh, all of you. Happy thank hope everybody had a thanks a happy Thanksgiving in the audience as well. Uh, and hope you guys have a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Yeah, it's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing this, Vago. Great to be on.